Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this week is our producer, Stephen Trader. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Hello, Natalie. It's going well. How are you? I'm so excited. We are officially in the home stretch of opinion season. They came down fast and furious this week on Thursday and Friday, with the court handing down opinions in eight cases over the past two days. That's a lot to dig into. So let's dive right in. Yeah, let's dive right into it. But I, I do just have to say first, Natalie, I really appreciate the energy that you bring every opinion day. You are ready for the blockbusters. You're up early. We're chatting about it. I'm a little nervous. I get a little anxious, but you're a true Supreme Court professional. Your energy is infectious. And so, yes, I am, in fact, ready to dive in. Oh, thanks, Stephen. I appreciate that. And yeah, it just it feels like things are getting done, like things are happening. I It's exciting times for me. Well, we love to see it. So yeah, let's get into it. We had a bit of an immigration law morning at the Supreme Court on Friday. The justices handed down two separate opinions. One was in the case U.S. v. Hansen. We talked about this case back when it was argued in March, and it deals with a federal law that makes it a crime to encourage illegal immigration. The Ninth Circuit had found that it was unconstitutionally overbroad But the Supreme Court upheld the law on Friday morning in a 7-2 opinion, ruling instead that the statute would not sweep up large swaths of protected speech, as some immigrant rights groups had argued. The justices also decided a second immigration case on Friday, U.S. v. Texas, which relates to the Biden administration's immigration policy of prioritizing certain higher-risk groups of people for deportation proceedings. In that case, the justices ruled 8-1 to that Texas and Louisiana did not have standing to challenge the policy. We would like to welcome in our Law360 senior immigration reporter, Britt Egan, who has been extremely busy today. Britton, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us. No problem. Thanks for having me back. So let's get to the U.S. v. Texas case, which you have been working on all day. There were multiple questions about the Biden administration's new deportation policy, including whether the states had standing to sue. And it seems like the justices decided that and then stopped there. What else can you tell us about how this one went? Um, Well, the big component of this decision was indeed the standing question. Um, The justices did not weigh in on the legality Uh, of the policy. But um, what I heard today from attorneys uh, is that it really sent a clear message to states that they cannot um, put forth uh, sort of flimsy um, arguments for standing, that they can't get around concrete standing requirements that have historically um, been at the heart of Supreme Court precedent. They have to follow uh, those more traditional stricter guidelines for standing. That's right. You, you're um, for for our listeners. You've actually been spending the day um, at a conference uh, for immigration lawyers. So um, I, I'm just curious, like, what was uh, the vibe? Like, was this a surprise uh, for 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 those at the conference? Uh, kind of expected. Well, 
immigration attorneys have been um, highly anticipating this ruling. And because we are approaching the end of June, it was definitely on everyone's radar. We just weren't exactly certain when it was going to drop, but it was like you know, immediate <laughs> buzz. People stopped what they were doing um, and were huddling together and reading the opinion and dissecting it. Um, there was a lot of energy here. There was a lot of excitement. Um, it definitely was the talk of the conference. So is there anything else you heard from immigration attorneys? There's obviously this issue of standing and the takeaway that states can't bring this flimsy standing argument. But what else does this case mean moving forward for immigration law or any other cases? What did you hear today? So there's some, there's some uncertainty. The opinion wasn't necessarily uh, super clear on whether or not other kinds of cases um, states would be able to argue that they have standing. So some attorneys said they they thought the justices left a roadmap of sorts um, for other strategies the states could possibly employ. I think the larger message of the opinion was that policymaking really belongs in the realm of Congress and that the states can't use litigation uh, to make judges create the policy outcomes that they want. Um, in terms of its immediate impact, there are a number of pending immigration-related cases, many of them, most of them actually lodged by the state of Texas, many of them currently active in federal district courts in Texas. And the states have argued in a lot of these cases that they have standing because they're suffering some kind of economic harm from the policy. Usually that would be in the form of increased costs for social services for non-citizens that they've tried to tie uh, directly to these policies. Um, so they've made similar arguments in other of these cases. And so what I heard today from attorneys is they expect to see the uh, Justice Department moving in some of these cases for more briefing on how today's decision uh, impacts the case or maybe supplemental briefing on the standing issue, potentially motions to dismiss that rely heavily on the reasoning in today's decision. Um, and additionally, it will pour some cold water on future challenges. Uh, I'm told that states are going to have to be a little more thoughtful and creative and address the standing question uh, more squarely and head on. That's really interesting. Actually, can we dig a little bit deeper into um, just why the states in this particular case just said they didn't have standing? Yeah, sure. So um, the states in this case um, had actually shown that there were some increased costs uh, associated with the policy, um, which is a, differs a little bit from some of the other pending cases where that connection isn't as strong here. They were able to actually show um, show that. However, the majority opinion held that that was not um, enough. Um, federal uh, federal legislation, federal policies have a tendency to create um, sort of like 
forgetting the term that they use, but like a buy effect of sorts on states in terms of their spending and the costs that they incur. But that um, that isn't a reason enough. It's like an indirect cost, basically. It's an indirect cost that the states um, are absorbing that is not enough um, to acquire standing because it isn't, number one, a concrete injury. And it's also not an injury that the courts can redress. Um, so that was a little more of the reasoning behind why the justices determined the states didn't have standing. So just to kind of wrap this up, can you give us an idea of where this case stands now? It started from a district court judge in Texas who issued a nationwide injunction. Does that go back to his court and will this play out at the lower court level? Uh, what happens next immediately in this case? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I believe the policy was vacated um, and it's just reversed. So that's it. It doesn't go back to the lower court for any further proceedings. The policy is revived and the Biden administration can use it. Well, Britton, again, it's been such a busy day for you. You had such great coverage on the, both the immigration cases today. So I encourage our listeners to go and read Britton's stories and her analysis. And just again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to talk to us. Thank you for having me. That was a great conversation with Britton. Um, but we should move forward because, like I said, it was a busy week with opinions. Um, we're not going to go through all of them, but I did want to briefly mention on Friday, there was another ruling um, in Coinbase versus Bielski. I apologize if I'm not saying that one right, um, but I do know that the legal community has been watching this one closely because it dealt with a question on whether litigation can be stayed during the appeal of an arbitration denial. So kind of a technical one, but it's like an important question about like when litigation and pretrial discovery and everything else can go forward if an arbitration has been denied but it's getting appealed the court in a 5-4 decision with the majority opinion written by justice kavanaugh basically said it's common sense that a arbitration appeal should mean an automatic stay in, in litigation so justice kavanaugh said if the district court could move forward with pre-trial and trial proceedings while the appeal on arbitrability was ongoing then many of the asserted benefits of arbitration, efficiency, less expense, less intrusive discovery, and the like, would be irretrievably lost, even if the Court of Appeals later concluded that the case actually had belonged in arbitration all along. Now, this was a split decision, as I mentioned. Justice Jackson wrote the dissent, joined by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, and joined in part by Justice Thomas as well. They basically were saying, look, it wrestles away the discretion afforded trial judges who know the case best. So kind of a, a hit to trial judges, but at least there's more clarity here on like how proceedings should move forward when there's like this situation. Yeah, that's certainly one that the legal community is going to want to know about uh, important proceedings there. And uh, I think now let's transition to because we're recording this on Friday and we had a whole Thursday day of opinions as well. And I know, Natalie, you wanted to talk about one that was a, a pretty big deal that was handed down yesterday. That's right. There has been this major habeas corpus case that we've been following all term long. I think we might have even mentioned it um, actually on our preview episode uh, when we kicked off this last season. Um, Jones v. Hendricks was the case. And the court on Thursday cinched in the habeas corpus process with their opinion in this case. 
In a 6-3 decision with the majority written by Justice Thomas, the court ruled that federal prisoners can't use a habeas petition to have their sentences overturned, even after a new case law makes them retroactively innocent. I do remember talking about this in our preview episode, but can you refresh us on the background of this case? Yeah, it's been a couple months for for me to add a refresh my my own memory. Um, But the case centers on Marcus D'Angelo Jones, a Missouri man who was sentenced in 2000 to more than 27 years for possessing a gun as a felon. Jones had previously been convicted of drug possession, but argued he wasn't aware he was officially a felon because of those drug busts and didn't know that he couldn't buy a gun. Obviously, he was convicted, though, just because the court said you're a felon. Doesn't matter that you didn't know. In June 2019, though, the Supreme Court, in a case known as Rehef versus U.S., altered the legal standard for convicting people uh, under the federal gun possession law. They specifically said prosecutors have to prove that the defendant knew both that he was a felon and that proof that he was possessing a gun, knowing he was a felon. This made Jones legally innocent of his crime if that precedent was to be made retroactive. Jones, by that point, however, had filed many unsuccessful motions to either be resentenced or released, including several habeas petitions. And the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, the federal law that outlines habeas, basically, bars successive motions to challenge sentences. So he was basically out of chances then. Exactly. So there was, though, some help for Jones in that there's this And I'm not going to get into all the specifics because it's super technical. Um, Please, I encourage listeners to go check out um, our great coverage on this case. Um, But there was so there was some hope for Jones in that there's a federal law clause that's known in the habeas corpus crowd as a safety valve. Because if you can prove that like this alternative to habeas process that exists, then there is an alternative process to habeas that exists. If you can prove that that process is deficient in some way, you can circumvent the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act and file a habeas petition. So Jones was trying to use the safety valve. And, you know, he's not the only one. There's actually been a deep circuit split on whether Supreme Court cases making someone retroactively innocent triggers this safety valve or not. The majority on Thursday said it does not. The savings clause does not authorize the end run around the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, Justice Thomas said. Uh, He also added that he believed that to rule otherwise would have basically extended habeas corpus beyond the scope intended when the Constitution was written. Now, you mentioned this was a six to three opinion, divided court here. I'm, I'm guessing I know where the dissents come from, but where did they come from? Uh, Yeah, not. They weren't surprising. Uh, Justices Sonia Sotomayor and uh, Justice Elena Kagan dissented in joint opinion, um, saying the decision yields disturbing results. Um, And Justice Tanji Brown-Jackson, she actually filed a lengthy dissent in which she said she was deeply troubled by the repercussions of the ruling. Uh, She said, quote, forever slamming the courtroom doors to a possibly innocent person who has never had a meaningful opportunity to get a new and retroactively applicable came for release reviewed on the merits raises serious constitutional concerns, end quote. Well, that's a huge one for uh, criminal justice and certainly one that, you know, it's coming at the end of the term. Everybody was paying attention to this one. So that's likely going to have a huge impact, I imagine. 
Definitely. You know, um, our senior reporter uh, for Access to Justice, Marco Poggio, he's already been speaking with um, some folks kind of in the habeas corpus crowd, uh, so to speak. And and they were, you know, obviously very disheartened by the ruling Um, arguments. During arguments, they kind of had seen a glimmer, I think, of hope that the justices might not rule this way or might not rule so broadly. But yeah, so it definitely was a a hit to, to some who are basically trying to find uh, another way to overturn their convictions. Now, Stephen, there was also another opinion on Thursday that I know you were watching. Yeah, I just wanted to note this one quick uh, before we get out of here, Natalie. It um, was a 5-4 majority, which held that the federal government is not responsible for helping the Navajo Nation secure water rights for their 17 million acre reservation. I thought this was an interesting one. I saw it got some news coverage. We haven't talked about it much this term, so I just wanted to note it pretty quickly. And this is a dispute over an 1863 treaty the tribe signed with the federal government, which provided the Navajo access to land. And the reservation that they occupy spans a huge swath of space that extends through Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. And there are several water sources like the Colorado River, the Little Colorado. Those are controlled by the government and they outline the the reservation. And this also happens to be located in a very dry part of the country. And as you can imagine, there is competition for precious water. And so just to be clear here, the Navajo Nation did not sue specifically to get access to any particular water source. But it argued that the 1863 treaty required the government to assess the nation's water rights, which could change their allocation from some of these important sources. The majority on Thursday said that the government was not required to do that, though, under the treaty. Here's a quote from Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who wrote the majority. Notably, the 1863 treaty did impose a number of specific duties on the United States, but the treaty said nothing about any affirmative duty for the United States to secure water. As this court has stated, Indian treaties cannot be rewritten or expanded beyond their clear terms. That's what Justice Kavanaugh wrote. So again, I just wanted to point that out. Um, An important ruling for sure. And certainly when it comes to water access, you know, I think that's kind of important and and one that I'm sure is going to continue. We'll see those cases bubbling up. So just wanted to note that one. Yeah. And one of um, several key Native American rights cases that we've seen at the term, um, frankly, past term, (laughs) Um, and that we've seen kind of uh, coming out of the the court finally with their opinions in the last two weeks. Um, Speaking of opinions, uh, Tuesday has been added as another opinion day to the calendar already. I'm sure it will not be the only day. Uh, I feel like we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel here. There's eight opinions left. And I think with two or three opinion days next week, the justices will make their traditional July 4th cutoff, despite all of my nervousness earlier, <laughs> just a few weeks ago. <laughs> no, you're not nervous. You're you're inspiring to me. You can't get nervous. I'm the nervous one. <laughs> but yes, we do, we do have a full week next week where we're covering opinions. And we'll see when we're releasing episodes with that, of course. But we'll, we'll be watching those. The blockbusters are are here. I think it's pretty much the big ones left. So uh, we'll be watching those closely. That's right. Harvard's Affirmative Action, the Voting Rights Act case in North Carolina's Moore versus Harper, and the case involving Biden's student debt loan de- debts, to name a few. Uh, it's going to be a big week. Going to be a big week, I think. But yeah, Stephen, thanks so much for, for breaking these down this, this week. It was great talking to you, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. 
If you liked our episode, please, listeners, leave us a review. It really does help us out. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our guests this week, Britton Egan. And shout out to other reporters who contributed to this episode, Jess Koshtangle, Crystal Owens, and Marco Poggio. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening.